Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And we are joined by a second rabbi today, Daniel Vesrub from the beautiful city of Chicago. Hey, Daniel. Hi. Um, and Daniel, you are an Orthodox rabbi, uh, at least of the Orthodox denomination. You I'll, I'll answer to that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so question for you both like i know if i were you know if i had invited say a christian orthodox priest or or a roman catholic to onto the podcast they would have some very different perspectives than i do you uh, how how wide are the differences in orthodox and reformed judaism so the the certainly within orthodoxy i think the internal differences are much wider than they are than between the different denominations ah. that, you know, it's uh, the name of the book is, I think it's the joy of sects. Talks about <laughs> the, yeah. Oh, it's a great title. I wish I coined it. Yeah. Um, it talks about the, the different flavors of Orthodox Judaism. Some of which call each other non-Orthodox. So it gets right back to the, 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 the Catholics versus the Orthodox, you know, which one of us really is the one Holy Roman Apostolic Catholic Church, you know, right. um, but the, the, you know, what, the, 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 the flavors, you know, are, are so variated. Uh -huh. Look at look at Orthodoxy is kind of like a garden. Okay, with all different types of flowers, all different types of plants, and they all call themselves Orthodox, and it's all good. Okay, and sometimes they get along with each other, sometimes not. And there's no, like, orthodox council that meets to decide things and put out encyclicals or things like that. I was going to say there were several. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Dozens and dozens and dozens. Uh, and they all I, agree uh, that everyone else is wrong. I'm only half-joking when I, when, I, when, I, when I tell people I'm opposed to organized religion. That's why I practice Judaism. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. There is a truth to it. Now, Daniel, when we're talking about orthodoxy, for, for those people who are less familiar with Jewish denominations, when we're talking about orthodoxy as opposed to reform or conservative, sort of the three big flavors that yeah. you find in the United States of Judaism, yeah. is it fair to say that the dividing line is really the question of fundamentalism? So what do you mean when you use the word fundamentalist there? You know, I think you're going to find, at least in the clergy of reform and conservative congregations, those rabbis, you're going to find people who are interested in uh, sort of contemporary secular education. You're going to find people who uh, believe academic things about the Bible and its origins as well as sort of theological things. Hmm. Uh, but I think when you enter into orthodoxy, there's a, almost an assumption of fundamentalism, a view that the the Tanakh is inerrant, even if we mean that in a different way than maybe Christians do with the same term. Yeah, I, th I think there's some of it. I think, the, let's put it this way, the borders are a lot more fluid than most people think they are. Um, but yes, by and large, you have, and I wouldn't call it fundamentalism, I would simply say tra the, the, the traditional form of Judaism that emerged out of classical Judaism and its various expressions. That's orthodoxy's claim to we're their legitimate inheritors. So is it, funda is it fundamentalist? I, I, I don't know. I think Judaism has a built-in anti-fundamentalist component to it. So I guess the reason I am using the term fundamentalism 
is, uh, you know, I, orthodoxy emerges in the 19th century as a response to reform. That's right. Uh, and to reformers. And, you know, when I think about orthodoxy, I actually think they are in their own way as radical in their conservatism as reform is in its liberalism. That's right. Uh, and in similar ways are unheard of in Jewish history prior. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, you know, the, the, game, the, the game of different movements, different political parties is as old. In fact, it predates rabbinic Judaism itself. Yeah, sure. Well, okay. course, yeah. Hillel, the houses of Hillel and Shammai. Uh, very, very different approaches to, to, to Judaism and Jewish law. Yeah, um, the ver- the various academies in Babylonia with different ways of understanding earlier texts. So this is nothing new in that sense. What's what's different now is that these these different ways of thinking used to coexist fairly peacefully. So there is no Orthodox Judaism in the, in the medieval period because there's just rabbinic Judaism. Now, in all of its range, in, in its full in its full spectrum. It's, it's only at some point when, when, when orthodoxy, as it were, it doesn't even have a name yet, feels threatened by the reformers that they start needing to circle the wagons, and that then creates an orthodoxy. And, of course, the, the, the fight within orthodoxy for what is it, what's, you know, where are the boundary conditions, who's in, who's out. But that's what? in some ways old arguments. What were the reformers trying to reform? I mean, what what were their critiques of rabbinic Judaism as it then stood? You know, I don't I don't think you can understand reformers outside of the context of European Enlightenment, because really, what all this is is a response to Jews being slowly and in very small ways brought into the mainstream of European society. Right, okay. all of a sudden, for the first time, particularly post Napoleon. Uh, there are places where Jews are becoming citizens and Jews have access to the public square and to the academies and the universities and the, uh, so on and so forth. And prior to that, the Jewish ghetto had been imposed by outside forces. Uh, and then the response to the opening of the ghetto doors, metaphorically and literally, uh, really is the difference between reform and orthodox, where uh, I think the reformers uh, – run out to embrace the opening of this and many within particularly the ultra Orthodox world uh, put up the walls of the ghetto themselves. And as part of that, because experience had told them that they probably really just couldn't trust the, uh, the societies they were living among. I mean, you know, they had been at that point, they had been uh, subject to programs and other things throughout medieval history. So, I mean, was there part of, was suspicion part of that? I think certainly uh, that that's a, a big part of it. It's also just, you know, traditionalism uh, mm-hmm. in wanting to maintain a way of life and, and a way of life that may have been imposed on them previously, but now felt necessary. Um, you know, the, the romanticized version of this story is Fiddler on the Roof. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it's, it's highly romanticized, and it's important to remember there was nothing romantic about the Jewish ghetto. Right. Um, and I think that skepticism, the European skepticism played out. I mean, it's worth remembering that the place that really was the center of reform, Germany, just, you know, less than a century later becomes the center of the Holocaust. 
So after the Holocaust, among orthodoxy, was there a certain uh, attitude of we told you so? I won't say we told you so. There was there was a, a great degree of retrenchment that if, if orthodoxy had built into it a fluidity before the Holocaust, a, 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 at least a certain degree of adaptability, because that's how rabbinic Judaism functions when it's working right. Uh-huh. It didn't get shut down, but certainly in North America, it went to greater stringency. It went to greater a sense of we have to we have to keep things the way they are because we're afraid. Right. And I'm not I'm not I'm in no way disparaging my more orthodox colleagues on this. This is simply how it is. Yeah. Well, it seems like a fairly reasonable fear, given yeah. history. Well, it's, I, I, it's, it, I would call it a counter-reformation, kind of, sort of. Post-Holocaust? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Ah, um, there's, there, there are also ideas, and this is, this is, this is going to sound strange, but the, the, the great scholars of Orthodox Judaism who could have moved Orthodox Judaism to be able to fully embrace modernity, to fully enter the 20th and 21st century on terms that made sense within orthodoxy, mm-hmm. they perished. Uh. And so the ones who were left, not just, I mean, we're second-rate scholars. I mean, every generation thinks, you know, who are we, right? You know, our, our ancestors, they knew what they were doing. We're, we're nothing. Uh-huh. But there's, there's a sense that we can't, we're, 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 there, there's a, just a fear factor, mm. you know, and so it's better the devil you know. Right. Well, speaking of the devil, we know. Shall we jump into uh, Exodus? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, it, I, I think this is a great day for us to be talking about the priests and their bling. Um, <laughs> <and> their bling, <laughs> because uh, because we've, got, you know, we've this, gone from the Home Depot manual now to to, to the Joanne Fabrics manual. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's exactly right. We we had an IKEA manual a few episodes back. There you uh, go. But you know this this too is a uh, a vanished form of Judaism that's really being described here. Um, so I mean I don't I don't, we'll say more about that as we go on I think. But um, but we should know that this this priesthood has not existed now for what like a little under two thousand years. Uh, yeah. yeah, certainly not in practice. And yeah. uh, you know, interestingly though, speaking of Orthodox, when you get to the particularly Israeli and significantly farther to the right than uh, Daniel Orthodox world, there are people who are making these garments and practicing the rituals of the priestly uh, service with the idea that any moment this could resume. You mean as soon as the temple is rebuilt, they want to be on hand to do, to do the work. Yes. Though many of them believe that the temple is built on high and is just waiting to descend. Oh, interesting. So there's an apocalypticism behind this as well. Deep apocalypticism, particularly by those who, uh, you know, are thinking of it today. And are the people who are doing this Levites, or does that no longer matter in the apocalyptic imagination? No, you would have to be a Levite. Okay. You'd have to be Le- a Levite. Levites or, or Aaronite priests. Yes. What is the difference? So the, the tribe of Levi was one of the 12 tribes. Right. Um, unlike the unlike the other eleven tribes, it didn't have a, a single contiguous homeland in the land of Israel. They were dispersed throughout, uh-huh. um, and so of that tribe, two of the most famous Levites you may have heard of them are named Moses and Aaron. Yeah. 
So Moses gets, he's the one-time wookie-wook. That's a technical term. Right. Um, Aaron and his sons get priesthood forever. Okay, so, but they're also Levites, right? They're all, they're, they're, that's right. So our priests are all Levites. Okay. It's a so, subcategory of Levites. It's a subcategory. Exactly right. Thank you, Dan. Is, and is it a subcategory that matters in any particular way? It does, actually, deeply. And actually, we, we still find these in the Torah reading every week. Uh, Daniel, you're a, a Torah reader. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I am. So, so the, the, the practice is on different holidays, in particular on the Jewish Sabbath, you have the Torah reading. Um, it's divided up into a number of sections. Uh, Saturday morning, for example, it's seven. Um, and the general practice is that the first one is reserved for an Aaronite priest, a Kohen. Oh. Uh, yep. And the second one is hey, it's good. It's 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 good to to, to be to be the big Kahuna, as it were. Apparently. Uh huh. Um, and then the second uh, reading is reserved for a Levite. And then the next five are reserved for us peasant farmers. At least oh. I'm a peasant farmer. I, I don't know your lineage, Daniel, but... You know. I, I am a Kohen. Are you really? I am. I did not know that. Wow. I uh, am. Wow. So as as this is practiced today, I mean, is this practiced anywhere? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Just, every okay. Basically, every shul you show up in. But that's really the extent of it uh, today, is that you show up in shul and, oh, you're a Kohen. You get the first aliyah. Priestly blessing. Yeah. Uh, is the other, the no, other place where it happens. What if oh, there's yeah. no Kohen around? Then you dispense with it and you simply do it by whoever comes, whoever you want to come first. Okay. Okay. Um, and what are, what are these priestly blessings of which you speak? So this is right out of Leviticus, Daniel. Uh, uh, numbers, the, the, I think. Numbers, thank you. I have, I've only had one cup of coffee this morning, and it shows. Um, so uh, where Aaron, is, Aaron and his sons are commanded to bless the people of Israel. You, so then, you know this one, even if you don't realize you know it. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you safe. Yeah. Um, but I did not realize that was a... a a, pre, a priestly blessing. It is in fact called Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing. Okay, and, um, and can is, anyone else do it if there is no priest, or, uh, no Kohen around, or or is it no Kohen, no blessing? No Kohen, no blessing. Uh, it's done really only, particularly outside of Israel, it's done only a handful of times a year, and it's very dramatic, and all the uh, people who claim priestly lineage go to the front and cover themselves in a talus, and there's a whole tradition that you're not supposed to look at them, that the uh, the first time you cheat and look at them, you go blind in your left eye, and the second time you cheat and look at them, you go blind in your right eye, and the third time you cheat and look at them, you die, but of course, if you're blind in both eyes, I don't know how you can look at them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and why are you not supposed to look at them? I always understood this simply as, as humility. That when when, okay. when when the priests acting as a vehicle for the divine are bringing God's blessing to you, you don't look them in the face. So that's this, how I understand it. Th- this is above my size. The real truth. Oh come on! I'm trying to find a rational. Ethical reason for something. You just come along and call it a Bubba There's nothing wrong with that, you know. There you go again. Uh, Bubba sounds like some kind of um, disease that that, uh, people from Arkansas might get. I guess this is a Yiddish term. I didn't even think of it. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Grandma's tail. 
A grandma's tale. Okay. Yeah, a like a, it's, a, it's a close synonym. It's a close synonym of Narishkeit. <laughs> oh, well, that helps. Yeah, which yeah. is nonsense. Which is nonsense. Okay, okay, now I get it. Um, okay, uh, so this is a revelation to me because I have been going along thinking that the the priesthood really doesn't matter to present-day Judaism, and now you're telling me and that it, it, it matters doesn't. all over the place. It, it, no, it, it, in, in, in actual operations, our synagogues aren't run by priests. They're run by rabbis, maybe. Right. Right. A very few number of ritual occasions throughout yeah. the year where priestly lineage or a claim of priestly lineage uh, gives you a ritual opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So for the most part, it doesn't matter that much, but there is still a, a place for priests should they descend uh, with the temple. Yes. And, and, and the and the people who are already like you, Daniel. Uh, ancestrally priests. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, in other words, when that third temple comes down from the heavens, you've got a gig. Yeah, I'm, I've got guaranteed employment. I'm good to uh, go. Uh, I, I am a vegetarian, which might cause some issues with the whole animal sacrifice thing. Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a beautiful teaching from one of the early 20th century mystics in the land of Israel, Rav Cook, that in the third temple they'll offer flowers on the altar of God. Instead uh, of blood, it's, it's lovely. Beautiful. It's lovely. Yeah. Rob Cook, also a vegetarian. Yep. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So uh, let's actually start reading the thing now that we've spent, uh, you know, almost a solid 20 minutes talking around. Yeah, part of the course, read, right? read a chapter of Exodus? What, what kind of podcast do you think this is? <laughs> um, uh, okay. So I'll start reading. And you, bring you forward Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from the midst of the Israelites to be priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron. Uh, Hey, Daniel, would you read those names for us in Hebrew? Sure. Um, Aharon, Nadab, Avihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. Thank Thank you. you. Much better. Yep. Um, And you shall make sacred garments for Aharon? Aharon. You can say Aaron. Yeah, exactly. I know, but now now I want to practice my Hebrew. (laughs) (laughs) Make sacred garments for Aharon, your brother, for glory and for splendor. And you speak to every wise-hearted person whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aharon's garments to consecrate him. To be priest to me. Uh, are you guys just wincing every time I mispronounce this? Uh, it's all right. great. Whether the, whether the haze aspirated or not doesn't really matter. It's all okay. good. I'll just go back to Aaron to say what as much as I can. Um, and these are the garments that they shall make breastplate and ephod and robe and checkwork tunic, turban and sash. Uh, let's stop there because what is an ephod? I believe there's some confusion on this. What is an ephod? (laughs) Uh, Daniel, any thoughts here? Uh, not a clue. Not a clue. That is the traditional understanding of it. If I, if I read, if I read, if I read this stuff correctly. Okay. But but, we're not quite sure. But what are people in Israel doing if they're waiting for the temple to descend? They're waiting. They're waiting. They're not, they're not sewing their ephods Uh, as they it's like Project Runway. <laughs> together, okay. they each make an ephod. We're gonna. That's how we're doing this. Uh, 
Well, I'm really, I'm really disappointed. I thought they would have gotten the ephod figured out. Uh, so we do but, have a tradition of the ephod, right? And in fact, the uh, Torah sure. itself, when you open up an ark at a synagogue, is covered in what we imagine an ephod might have looked like, mm-hmm. okay, um, or something like it. But we, we've got Rashi here admitting that he has really no idea. Uh, D- Daniel, you want to read the Rashi for us? Sure. Um, I haven't heard, nor have I found in the Talmud, an explanation of the ephod's form. My heart tells me that it is tied on the back, its width the width of a person's back, it's formed like an apron worn by princesses when they ride horses. We should note its form is like the apron worn by French princesses living a thousand years ago exactly. when they would ride yeah. horses. Uh-huh. Uh, and interestingly, Rashi frequently uh, says a word means this in ancient French. And because of that, Rashi is studied both by Jews and by linguists who study ancient French. He's one of the best sources they have of that. Oh, cool, cool. And and basically, what he's saying is, uh, an ephod looks like whatever the most spectacular garment of my time would look like. Yeah, is that too yeah. much of a simplification? No, but that's actually an interesting way of putting it. I've I mean, never thought. Of it. Yeah. The the, yeah. the the whole aesthetic of the entire Mishkan of the tabernacle and thus of the garments worn by the dudes doing it, it's bling, but in a good way. This is the most beautiful building, the most beautiful garments a human right. being can imagine. Right. So, yeah, it's going to be blingy, and that's cool. So whatever we can imagine is the most beautiful for our time will will serve as a description of an ephod. Until, for the moment, yeah, until we moment. get a real one, which yeah. don't have don't have one on me. Sorry. So well, there we go. So you know, I think there's another question that we're in some ways skirting around, which is why exactly for those of us who are not um, uh, doing sort of uh, recreation of this, why should we care about this? Right? Why should our listeners? be particularly moved by this kind of scripture? Uh, I'm not sure that they should, but, uh, but I am an Episcopal priest who does not care much about this kind of thing. And I know that if my, my friend Jason Pratty were on, he would have a completely different set of answers. Um, Daniel, what's your thought? Right. We read this every year. In fact, you literally are a uh, Torah reader. Uh, This is a big part of what you do. Why does why should this have any relevance to us? Right, this is as you said earlier the uh, uh, garment instruction handbook here. Yep. Um, I think there's uh, I, I, at the most basic level. I think there's something to knowing your own history that we may not wear this kind of garment Saturday morning when we go to synagogue, but that this is how our ancestors worshipped God in Judaism 1.0. Um, and that, and that, at a, at a certain level, at, at the most baseline level, garments matter, clothing matters. Yeah. Um, in Juda- so in uh, Episcopalianism, I will not speak for other forms of Christianity. There is a thing that happens where uh, people start wearing something for reasons which were lost or which were in some ways embarrassing. Um, and then there was an attempt to theologically justify it, usually through a story. So, like mm-hmm. the the stole would be a case in point. You know, a stole was nothing more than a a form of Byzantine regalia that showed that you were a high muckety muck in the bureaucracy. Okay, hold on. Um, what is this stole? Um, it is the 
piece of cloth, long, very long, rectangular piece of cloth that a priest wears around their neck. Um, not like a necktie, but kind of draped around their neck, like a, an un, uh, uh, unwound scarf. It's a Talus, Daniel. <laughs> oh, okay. There we go. There we go. One, right. one, one, reform, one reform or Yemenite style just draped down the front as opposed to over the shoulders or over the head. I, I, got it. Okay, so this uh, Daniel thing... Daniel's saying something important here, and Carl, we've talked about it before, that you know, for the early Reformed Jews in the United States, Episcopalians were the model for who we wanted to be. Really? But that, that was exactly the sort of integration into American society that we were looking for. Huh. Uh, and so actually you'll find that, particularly in places that we would today call classical reform, meaning reform that looks like the old reform, uh, you will find the rabbis wearing uh, a talus, this ritual prayer uh, shawl, that looks like the, the stole. Pipe, the stole. Right. Looks just and, like it. Right. And so this becomes even more – I mean, so, so in Christianity, the irony is that the Roman Empire, which persecuted Christians for 325 years, then uh, became Christian and the Christians started to dress like their old oppressors. And then now what you're telling me is that 1900 years, well, no, you know, 1500 years later, uh, Jews start dressing like the, the Christians dressing like the Roman. You got it. In some ways, as a, as a matter of culture, this should come as a, as a surprise to no one. Yeah, that's when, true. When, you know, as, 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 you, as you're doing, you know, Lost in the Wilderness, when you, when you look at the layout of the, of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and it looks something like either Egyptian temples or Canaanite temples. Yeah. Why, why are you surprised? What would you expect it to look like? Right. This is the motto we have, people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but, um, but, the, so, but the same way in, 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 in within Anglicanism, you have high church, low church. You know, you've got Sydney Anglicans who you're not allowed to wear the vestments at all. And then you've got High Church of England, which is all about the looking kind of like we're Roman Catholic. Right, right. And they and all that, subsist in the same Anglican Episcopalian church. Yes. So we've got the same issues flying. Of course. Yeah. And that's kind of the point I was making. So in, yeah. in, in Episcopalianism, you know, so we wear the stole. It doesn't have a, a historical reason that we particularly like or are proud of or want to talk about. So people come up with other things. Like they say, oh, it symbolizes the towel with which Jesus washed the disciples. Mm -hmm. feet, you know, which is total BS. But well, we, uh, we do that. Yeah. You yeah. do that too. Okay. Okay. Good. But, so. but it also act, but it acts as a demarker. It says this person is an ordained minister. Yes. I don't know if the deacons. Really I don't know if the deacons wear a stole or not. But certainly, you know. Yeah. So there you go. So you're your holy orders. Right. But they wear a different. They wear their stole like it's a beauty queen's staff. They're stole like it's a beauty Cross queen's right. staff. Right. Okay. There you go. So yeah. 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 Okay. Anyway, uh, once again, we're not we're failing to get very far. Uh, uh, does someone else want to pick up the reading from verse five? Uh, I'm happy to. Okay. They therefore shall receive the gold, the blue, purple, and crimson yards, and the fine linen. They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yards, and a fine twisted linen worked into designs. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached. They shall be attached at its two ends. And the decorated band that is upon it shall be made like it, of one piece with it, of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and a fine twisted linen. 
Then take two lazuli stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. On the two stones, you shall make seal engravings, the work of lapidary, uh, if that's how you say that word, yeah, uh, I think so. of the names of the sons of Israel, having bordered them with frames of gold. Attach the two stones to the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones for remembrance of the Israelite people, whose names Aaron shall carry upon his two shoulder pieces for remembrance before the Lord. Hmm. Any thoughts here? Um. Just about how, so the priest is kind of doing double duty just in what they wear. So they're wearing those clothes that signifies that they have uh, special access to God in, in some fashion. But they're also carrying on their very shoulders the weight of the entire people. So so their function in this garment is both directed at the divine, but also directed at the community. Huh. Yeah, it is both a symbol of status and a reminder of responsibility and hopefully humility. Mm. Right. Uh, in that sense, maybe not so different from the collar that you find priests wearing today. Um, well, but I don't think the collar is meant to remind us of like well, the entire Christian community. Maybe it is. I guess I need to think about that. That's a really interesting idea. I, you know, I guess I always think of the collar and I have some uh, jealousy of the collar. I always thought it was kind of cool. You do. I always <laughs> thought it was cool. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but it is a marker of a difference in status. And I would imagine, at least, and this is total projection, that when you have it on, you have an awareness that you've got it on. And that everyone notices you in a different way at McDonald's when you've got your collar on than when you don't. That is correct. I mean, I will say that I I am someone who wants to reject that special status as often as possible because I am deeply bothered by um, the fact that many people are willing to, uh, I, I don't know how to say this. There is a lot of clericalism in Christianity and in the Episcopal Church. You know, this there are priests who really do think they're better than everyone else, and I don't like wow. that. Uh, and, I, and I don't want to be like that. Um, and... Uh, so I, I rarely wear my color except when I'm for liturgical occasions or when I'm going to protest. Yes. I feel if I should bring, I, you know, I can bring some authoritative weight to that without feeling ashamed. That's interesting. That's interesting to protests. Yeah. 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 So anyway. Okay. I I remember back in the day when, when, when we had protests uh, in support of Soviet Jewry, you would have rabbis wearing a talit. There's yes. no liturgical reason to wear a talit to a protest. There's there's nothing in Jewish law about protest, um, but somehow this is as a as a demarcation saying yes, I'm a rabbi. Right. Yeah. 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 And and I think at that point, what I'm doing is really saying I'm here representing a whole lot of people. And you, oh governor, senator, whatever, had better pay attention. <laughs> yep. Because there are more people here than just me, so um, yeah. It's uh, in that sense, it's privilege in service of justice, right? Uh, okay, thirteen. Okay, you want to uh, want to take over, Carl? Sure, I could. Uh, and you shall make a filigree of gold and two chains of pure gold intertwined. You shall make them in cordwork. 
and you shall set the corded chains on the filigree, and you shall make a breastplate of judgment. Designer's work, like the work of the ephod, you shall make it. Gold, indigo, and purple, and crimson, and twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a hand spanned in its length, and a hand span its width. And you shall set in it a stone inset, four rows of stones, a row of ruby, topaz, and malachite, the first row. And the second row, turquoise, sapphire, and amethyst. And the third row, jacinth, agate, and crystal. And the fourth row, beryl and carnelian and jasper, framed in gold in their settings. We should have had a jeweler on today. But do we have? Yes, we have. We have a midrash for this, right? Uh, we've got a midrash. You want to take us through it? Uh, this is also Rashi. Uh, who says, in addition to the names of the tribes, the Talmud states that the stones also contains the words Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Shiftai, Yeshurun. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, so, so the breastplate should contain all 22 letters of the Holy Ton. All right, what does that mean? So the, there's all sorts of mystical traditions that say that the Hebrew alphabet itself has power. Uh, there are notions that the world was created through the alphabet. Okay. Uh, and so what they're noting, uh, what the tradition here is noting, is that if you add these words, then you have all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's going to be important in particular uh, because we're about to get a, uh, a Jewish Ouija board here. Uh, okay. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So we need all – we need these gems all to light up. Yes. Yes. Uh, Wait, is that actually? Should I read a little bit further? Is that actually in scripture? Uh, so we, we can we can cheat and go ahead. Uh, uh, in a couple minutes, uh, we're going to get to verse thirty, which is going to talk about the urim and the tumim, uh, these uh-huh. uh, uh, pieces that are going to work with all of the rest. Uh, so Rashi says he's picking this up from the Talmud that the urim and the tumim, uh, perhaps translated as the illuminator and the verifier. Uh, was an inscription of the name of God inserted in the folds of the breastplate. It caused the letters inscribed on its stones to light up in response to queries posed by the community leaders. As it is written in numbers, Joshua shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before God. So we've got this cosmic uh, divine Ouija board going on right here. So, Okay, a couple of questions. First of all, why is this necessary? Because at this point, we've had God speaking to select people without any need for um, for a kind of gemstone braille uh, to make sense of things. What? Why now is there is God at a further remove? Daniel, you have thoughts. Uh, I need to process that question. It's a good question. Um. You know, when I'm, I think uh, again, I'm, I'm looking at this through the, through through the light of rabbinic of the of the rabbinic tradition that once the Torah is given to Moses, that form of divine of divine revelation is done. Ooh, okay, yeah. It's it's in other words, it's it's a, it's, it's it's one and done. So now you have, but you still have at least in this phase of Jewish history of Israelite history, you still have prophets. So these yeah, are people who are, are, yeah, but 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 they, so they're gonna they're gonna tell you to some degree what does God want, right? How does how you know? So what do you do 
when you're not sure what to do. And when it, we're talking big picture, do we go to war? Do we not go to war? You know, right. so as it were, you're, 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 you're trying to discern God's will. Here's a vehicle to get it. You know, a divine I, oracle. A divine, I love the idea of the divine Ouija board. That's great. You know, I think the other piece to bring out here is there was great tension between priests, prophets, and nobility. Right. Yep. Uh, right. And we can really think of prophets as being outsiders to power in general. Uh, they are people who speak truth to power. Uh, priests, in some ways, are the ultimate religious insiders. They are the ones who keep the tradition, who are almost definitionally uh, conservative, small c here, conservative. Uh, and so what we're getting here is the priestly access to the divine, which is going to be almost definitionally liturgical. That's good. Uh, We've also got, we've also got different times going on here in the sense that, you know, we've talked about this before Carl, but really what's being described is the operation of early second temple Judaism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we've got these conversations through time that are happening within the text that we're talking about Moses and Aaron and their religious life, but we're also talking about the practical application and the, Literization is that I'm not sure if that's a word. Liturgization, sure, like that it is now. Uh, yeah, coined it. <laughs> the Moses experience into an established, settled geography. Yeah. Okay. So, so what you're saying in part is prophets. God might still talk to prophets from time to time, but if priests want to speak to God directly, this is how they do it. They got different methods, different and competing methods. Different and competing methods. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that's... um, I'm thinking, though, actually, now, since my family is priestly, that maybe I should get me a set of these. Well, right. I mean, it seems like you actually could build this. This, unlike the Ark of the Covenant, which gets lost, you know, uh, cannot be remade because there are no tablets from God to go inside a, a simulcrum. But here, you could do this, right? All you have to do is have the the ephod and the, or not the ephod, the the unum and the, or even the tumim. Yeah, yeah. Are those things that one could do? Like, can could you go write an urim and a tumim right now? I, I guess if we've got a, a, a talented listener who paid more attention in shop class than I did, uh, please let us know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I need to go watch Raiders of the Lost Ark again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we've discovered throughout the course of this podcast that that um, uh, our job, uh, Daniel Vaisrub, is to prepare Daniel Bogart for when the temple descends so that he can just immediately get to it. Get, get to work. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's got to have the right clothing. I've got to have the right clothing. Exactly. Um, right. Okay. Okay. Um, where were we? New so, Brooks Brothers for 2019. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. Um, uh, I don't remember where we stopped. Does anyone remember? What I, think, I think we're at verse 22. Verse 22. That's what I'm going to say. Okay. On the breastpiece made braided chains of corded work and pure gold. Make two rings of gold on the breastpiece and fasten the two rings at the two ends of the breastpiece, attaching the two golden cords to the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. 
Then fasten the two ends of the cords to the two frames, which you shall attach to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. We really are in full uh, uh, clothing manual here. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Make two rings of gold and attach them to the ends of the breastpiece at the, its inner edge, which faces the ephod. And make two other rings of gold and fasten them on the front of the ephod, low on the two shoulder pieces, close to its seams above the decorated band. The breastpiece shall be held in place by a cord of blue from its rings to the rings of the ephod, so that the breastpiece rests on the decorated band and does not come loose from the ephod. And Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel on the breastpiece of decision over his heart. When he enters okay, the city, wait, can, can we stop to, to get to my man, the Lubavitcher Rebbe? Lubavitcher Rebbe. Yeah, let's finish. Lubavitcher. Uh, yeah, I need, to, I need to learn to say his name if I'm going to. Uh, if he's going to be your guy. Yeah. Uh, let me if he's going to be my guy. Uh, when he yeah. enters the sanctuary for remembrance before the Lord at all times. Okay. 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 You want to read uh, your guy's commentary? Uh, sure. He says the ephod was worn in back and below the waist, the breastplate on the front and upper part of the wearer. Thus the deeper significance of the commandment, the breastplate shall not budge from the ephod, which ranks as one of the 365 prohibitions of the Torah. Okay, wait, stop. What does that mean? 365 prohibitions. Does that mean so, there are 365? So there's, there's, a, there's a traditional enumeration that there are 613 commandments in the, in the Torah. Uh-huh. 365 of them are thou shalt not. Ah, and, okay. yeah, and the remaining ones, take 613, subtract 365, I don't have a calculator in front of me, are the number of positive commandments. Thou shalt do this. So one of the prohibitions in the Torah is to not have the breastplate budge from the ephod. They have to okay. be connected. Yeah. Okay. That connection okay. is, 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 is necessary and it stands as its own commandment in its own right. Right. Wow. This is okay. So it gets pretty intense here. Um, so that there should be no gap between the upper and lower aspects of life or between its forward and backward elements. This is above. <laughs> I'll never be able to say his name, Lubavitcher Rabbi. Well, you got it. Well done. Okay. You got it. Uh, so he is now taking this and he is applying it to human life. He is uh, turning it into a metaphor. And he goes on to say, true, the human being consists of both the sensitive heart and the functional foot. True, life is composed of sublimely spiritual moments as well as the daily tending to one's material needs. The ephod must be securely bound to the shoshen. Shoshen. Yeah. Caution, thank you. The upper must permeate the lower, and the external must never lose sight of its inner essence and purpose. So that's very that's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Blime and the practical must be constantly uh, united. Yeah. yeah. Just like in, in, the breastplate. This is the classic mood, uh, move of what we call uh, Hasidic Judaism, and, and Lubavitcher Rebbe was solidly within the world of Hasidic Judaism. <laughs> which is to take the very external and apply it to the human internal, what we might call the psychological. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I like it. I, uh, yeah. you know, I find it really cool. Um, it's, it, this, is, this is a good, this is, it's a good riff off earlier um, levels of interpretation because the, the, the text itself sees these articles of clothing as symbolic. So that mm-hmm. symbolism can be, the, the the unity of a community in the twelve tribes of Israel, um, right. the, the 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 Aaron Abraham Isaac Jacob, um, it can be 
you know, having something on your breastplate, covering your, covering your heart. So here it's connecting your physical life, your material life in the world and your spirituality. Yeah. And they have to be tied to each other. That's a beautiful teaching. It really is beautiful. It really is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, You know, Carl, just, just for the future, if you really want to be like one of the cool people in the know, you can just call the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe. Really? You can be done. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I tend to just call you the Rebbe, but I I don't want to demote you, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Anyway. Uh, So we have now, where are we? Verse 28. You want to read for us? 28. Uh, Gosh, this is a long chapter. And they shall fasten the breastplate from its rings to the rings of the ephod with an indigo strand to be upon the band of the ephod. And the breastplate shall not slip from the ephod. And Aaron shall carry the names of Israel's son and the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he comes into the sanctum as a remembrance before the Lord perpetually. And you shall place in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, which we've already talked about. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he comes before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment for the Israelites over his his heart before the Lord perpetually. And you shall make the robe for the ephod pure indigo. And the opening for the head shall be in the middle of it. Its opening shall have a woven work border all around, like the opening of a coat of mail it shall be, and it must not tear. And you shall make on its hem pomegranates of indigo and purple and crimson on its hem all around and golden bells within them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate on the hem of the robe all around. Okay, that was quite song-like. Yeah, as if, uh, my, my translation yeah. is nearly not, not nearly as... Uh, uh, as poetical poetic, as Robert yeah. Alter? Yeah. Huh, Okay. Uh, Alter says of this that Judah Halevi, the great medieval Hebrew poet, echoes these words in a delicate, richly sensual love poem, registering an imaginative responsiveness to the sumptuous sensuality of the language here. All right. So we've got spirituality uh, linked with practical life. And now we even have uh, a a, a sensual metaphor drawn out of this. This sounds like a really noisy garment. (laughs) I know, I know. Uh, dear listeners, you did not know that this chapter would be so sexy. Exactly. Uh, so actually, yes. the, the noise we're told is on purpose, right? There, there are these bells on the pomegranate, and uh, there's a midrash that says, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great mystic, said, there are four things which the Holy One, blessed be God, hates, and I, too, dislike them. The fourth thing, we're going to skip the first three. The fourth thing is one who enters someone's house suddenly, how much more so his neighbor's house, right? There there are really only four things that God dislikes, and one of them is having God's privacy violated unexpectedly. Uh, I... I want to make this move. You know, I want to be like, there There are four things God hates. One is using the word ironically wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's so ironic. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, so then we're in fact told that when Rabbi Yochanan went to inquire after the welfare of Rabbi Hanina, he would always knock at the door in conformity with the verse mentioned right here, its sound shall be heard when he goes in. So the, the practical message is knock before you enter the bathroom. 
Right. Well, that's lovely. That you know, that is good advice. Wait, does that, does that apply even if you have a no knock F- warrant from from the Department of Justice? <laughs> well, well, well done. Well done. All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> Do you want to take it from here, Daniel? You read a little bit of this. Law and Law chapter. I think uh, verse thirty-five. Uh, okay, okay, so now I actually I have an English translation. If you want, if you want to fill it, go for it. Yeah, please. Thirty-five to the end. All right. Uh, okay. Aaron shall wear it while officiating, so that the sound of it, of it is heard when he comes into the sanctuary before the Lord, and when he goes out, that he may not die. Uh oh. You shall make a frontlet of pure gold and engrave on it the seal inscription, Holy to the Lord, suspend it on a cord of blue so that it may remain in the headdress. It shall remain at the front of the headdress. It shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may take away the sin arising from the holy things that the Israelites consecrate from any of their sacred donations. It shall be on his forehead at all times to win acceptance for them before the Lord. You shall make the fringed tunic of fine linen. You shall make the headdress of fine linen. You shall make the sash of embroidered work. And for Aaron's sons, you shall also make tunics and make sashes for them and make turbans for them for dignity and adornment. Put these on your brother Aaron and on his sons as well. Anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them to serve me as priests. You shall also make for them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. They shall extend from the hips to the thighs. I really like linen they, pants. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is in your heredity. Yeah, there you go. Is yeah, that, I, I never, is that a thing? It's my birthright. <laughs> it's a price. Okay. Okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, okay, our last verse here. Oh, yeah. Um, they shall be worn by Aaron and his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to officiate in the sanctuary so that they do not incur punishment and die. It shall be a law for all time for him and for his offspring to come. So, exactly. I have to wear my linen pants. Right, right. I think it's wonderful to have, you know, an excuse in Scripture to do the thing you want to do anyway. I, I think what's the point of Scripture if it's not that? <laughs> the, 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 the Torah commands you to wear underwear. That's yes. beautiful. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, do we have some final thoughts? Obviously, we, we found we had a lot to talk about here, which is really wonderful. Um, and the rabbis actually had a lot to talk about here, too, um, which is a little strange, given that uh, the priesthood was, you know, by the time of a lot of this writing, it was long in the past. So is there a nostalgia for the priesthood in Judaism? Like when Rashi is describing the ephod like a princess's garment is part of him saying, uh, remember back when the temple was still around and, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Particularly within orthodoxy, Daniel, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but particularly within orthodoxy, there's a real sense that when the temple was standing was preferable to our moment today. Now, Daniel, on a personal level, it wouldn't surprise me if you disagree with this as a Maimonidean, but... I, we say yeah, a little bit. Right. Yeah, I think you, you got you got it right. The, the, the primary trend within rabbinic Judaism is the pinnacle is temple Judaism. It's oh. sheer physical beauty. It's moral ethical beauty. 
was all all came all came to one place, and that's on 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 the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And what we're doing today is a pale reflection of a reflection of what that was. That our synagogues are what's called a mikdash me'at, a minor sanctuary, but that it's a it's it's very much a a, a, a distant memory of what it with the beauty of what it was like. And so, so there's a longing. There's a, there's a longing for that, but there's also the recognition that yeah, not so sure we want to go back to that. Oh, there is. Oh okay. yeah, in there most is. of that's the Maimonidean. That's the my the the, the the Moses Maimonides size. It said, yeah, that was a Judaism that worked then, and uh-huh. it doesn't work now. And so we can we can talk that maybe we want to have this back someday, but not so soon. So there isn't a feeling of by the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept. And there isn't a feeling like, okay, now we're back in um, uh, in Israel. Our first thing to do should be to build the temple because that's so, what we've been missing all along. So there certainly are people who view it that way. And, you know, historically this was not the case. Historically there was a consensus that the third temple would be built on high. This is uh, really uh, uh, helpful politically, right, because then you don't have to, for instance – figure out what to do with the existing Dome of the Rock, an incredibly sacred uh, holy site uh-huh. for Muslims. Uh, right. but, but along with religious Zionism, which is really religious, Jewish religious nationalism in Israel, uh, what you get are more and more people who believe that there should be an active role in making the temple happen, which is obviously deeply problematic. Uh, so that that is changing. Uh, but it is okay. not changing within mainstream reform and conservative Judaism where uh, there's an agreement that that either the temple will come back from on high or within reform Judaism that we don't pray for the restoration of the temple. We believe this is an improvement from temple-based sacrifice. That's right. Okay. So there are, so it's kind of considered fringy to, to want to rebuild the temple. Considered fringy, but moving into the mainstream within Israel, or moving into the religious right-wing mainstream in Israel, I should say. That, that's that's exactly it. It's one thing to say we hope that there is a temple rebuilt, and we're going to leave it for God to do that. That means I don't have to do anything except wait and uh-huh. hope and pray. That's it. If you actually think we can do this now, what do you do when you have a temple mount that's under our jurisdiction? What are we waiting for? Right. Yes. We don't want to start World War Three and you know the the, the end of times. You know, but other than that, you know, no problem. But if you are a messianist who believes that your actions are bringing about the coming of the Messiah, you can understand that perspective. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Right. And and you can kind of understand because isn't there an alliance between um, Christian fundamentalists? There's a whole like red heifer thing. And yeah. That, and exactly. Thing. Same idea. Right. Yeah. Okay. So for they all want they all want uh, the coming of the Messiah, although they may have different understandings of what that means. But they're willing to work together to make it happen. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, this was enlightening, my friends.
Very enlightening. Thank you for thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me. Yeah, yeah thank you for coming on. Uh, stay stay for a minute so we can do our outro and you can um, promote anything you want to promote. Uh, so thank you, dear listeners, for listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, which is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made new um and i have nothing to promote anymore uh the the exodus year in the diocese is over although we're going to keep podcasting but we had a lovely uh colloquium last saturday right now uh david dreisbach of the communications office is busy editing the video which will go up soon if anyone wants to see it but um i got nothing to promote what about what about you guys anything you want to plug daniel Nope. All right. I, so I, I guess my plug uh, is I just went to really an extraordinary conference on the intersection of anti-Semitism and white nationalism uh, led by uh, Eric Ward, who's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thinker on this and was uh, one of the original guitar players in the band that became Sublime. So there's a little bit of a, a plug for him. I uh, would just encourage people to Google Eric Ward and as white supremacy falls down, white nationalism stands up. Really an interesting article. Huh. Okay. And how worried are we, should we be since you've come from this? You know, I, I came, I grew up believing that anti-Semitism in the United States was not systemic. And what Eric Ward uh, shows in his research is that uh, white nationalism, uh, which is uh, different than white supremacy. White supremacy is the system we live under that uh, privileges whiteness. But white nationalism is uh, the belief that there should be a white ethno state. Uh, and that what's happening is white nationalism, which just 20 years ago was on the fringe of the fringes, is now entering into the mainstream of our conservative politics. Uh, and the concern is that uh, white nationalism can nationalize the underlying anti-Semitism that exists, uh, or at least the Jewish concern there. Right. Well, it should be everyone's concern. So in other words, we should be worried. We should be worried. Uh, Google the article. Eric Ward, as white supremacy falls down, white nationalism stands up. Actually, I bet we can even put a link in the uh, description. We could. All right. Well, uh, thank you um, for that for that morning call. And uh, Daniel Basrop, thank you so much for joining us. And dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week. Bye.